Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hello everyone, it's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 260. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Well, yesterday was one of those days, wasn't it? Oh, my goodness. You were really excited because you had an appointment to go get a a new tattoo. Mm -hmm. And you'd had to cancel a number of times before. In fact, you were scheduled to go at 1 o'clock, but you called and postponed it until because of an obligation that came up. And then, I, you know, you get in your car and you leave. Mm -hmm. And about uh, five minutes later, I see you pull back into the driveway. Yep. And what had happened? Well, you you tell the story. Well, um, someone coming on to the... Uh, the island that we live on, uh, on the causeway, apparently went off the road and hit a pole, which took out uh, the pole and our power uh, and left us unable to leave our home for several hours. So you actually got to the causeway on your way to the tattoo and um, the universe intervened once again. Mm Mm-hmm. And the pole was down, the wires were down, and uh, you had to come back and you didn't get your tattoo. And and in addition to that, we were without power for hours. And so our apologies to our premium subscribers. This episode was a few hours later than than normal. Do apologize. We had to deal with all of that. (laughs) And so I know you're disappointed about not getting your your tattoo yesterday. So I've been taking a look at the design that that you have and I'm pretty sure I can do it with a Sharpie. Oh wow. So where do you Thank want you. it? <laughs> that was actually still one of my questions. So uh, uh this gave me a little bit more time to figure out <laughs> the positioning of the the new tattoo. I uh, did want to before we get too into things, uh big thanks to John who uh sent us some dollars yesterday. He did. Yeah, Aww. and uh, I just really appreciate a nice little gifty sent and in, in the tip jar? In the tip jar. Oh, thanks, yeah. John. We really appreciate it. Well, I got a story for you today. Are you ready? Ready. Prepare your pork taint. 
It was a cold winter morning in Devon, England in 1855, and the people of that particular sleepy shire woke up to a very strange sight. <laughs> so so poetic, Thanks. that particular sleepy shire. Yeah, well, you know, I was feeling poetic. I love it. Um, so what, what they saw was snow on the ground, which is not uncommon, but it is unusual. Mm-hmm. And the snow had blanketed the ground, but also covering the ground was a crisscrossing of tracks. It looked like animal tracks, but it was different somehow. It appeared as though they were made by hooves. But not by deer or or horse. Um, They were all in a single file line, like an animal walking on two legs, just putting one's foot in front of the other. And they stretched across the countryside. In the May 26th, 1855 issue of Bell's Life in Sydney, they published in its miscellaneous extracts column a weekly dispatch dated February 18th. Quote, it appears on Thursday night, there was a very heavy snowfall uh, snowfall in the neighborhood of Exeter and south of Devon. On the following morning, the inhabitants of the above towns were surprised at discovering footmarks. Some of the strange, of a strange and mysterious animal. (gasps) Is it Krampus? Is it the Krampus? As the footprints were seen in all kinds of accountable places on the tops of houses and narrow walls in gardens and courtyards as well as open fields. The superstitious go as far as to believe that the marks are from Satan himself. The impressions of the foot closely resembled that of a donkey's shoe, measured about an inch and a half in some instances, and two and a half across, and appeared to be cloven. Sounds like Krampus to me. It didn't seem to be any type of animal that anyone recognized. I'm sorry, what did you say the date was? 1855. I'm sorry, the, the time of year. February. Ah, it's too late for Krampus. (laughs) Is it Krampus' procrastinating brother? (laughs) (laughs) Almost Krampus? (laughs) It was no type of animal that anybody could recognize because, you know, cloven hooves, but bipedal. Right. It didn't make a whole lot of sense. And for over 150 years, it's been confusing and a bit perplexing to both believers and skeptics worldwide. They call it the devil's footprints. Interesting. Now, even though this was Devon, footprints like this have been seen all over the world from time to time. But there was something very different and pronounced about this particular situation. The footprints appeared in over 30 locations in the village of Devon, all over the town south and east ends. They roamed across the countryside and the village for dozens and dozens of miles. They would even lead up to people's front doorstep and then turn around and then retreat and go back down the road again. These things got even more bizarre, though, because the villagers, they they followed these tracks and they didn't just go down roads or streets or alleys. They also would go up the side of walls. What? No, stop it. And over the top of roofs. (laughs) No, I don't like that. Over haystacks, through barn walls, and even through pipes that were no more than four inches in diameter. You didn't like the part about it going up the wall. Yeah. That freaks you out. Any, anytime we watch a horror movie and and a creature scampers up the wall and hides in the corner. <laughs> now, as I mentioned, uh, there were many similar sightings throughout history all over the world, but Devon's devil footprints were extremely rare in the sense that uh, 
That one night, the tracks covered over 100 miles. Whoa. So, I mean, that would be quite the prank. If, yeah. I mean, you have to be dedicated to fuckery. Yeah. If you're going <laughs> to do that kind of thing. One needs to be dedicated to their art of fuckery in order to pull off a prank of this magnitude. Um, now, this particular snowfall was perfect for this because it was just deep enough for the tracks to be seen and the temperature remained cold enough to preserve them long enough for locals to track them. So it's potentially the case that these tracks are around all the time yeah. and they're just the conditions aren't right. That's exactly what I was getting at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these bipedal midnight sojourns by hooved creatures could have been going on, or could be going on, all the time, yet undetected. Wow. Normally when the snow would occur in Devon, it would melt by dawn, which would destroy any evidence. Dead by dawn? Dead by dawn, or at least distort the animal tracks. Now, that's what some skeptics have said, that perhaps um, they were just like a, like, a, like a cute little bunny. And that the snow had started to melt and distorted oh, what, the, sure. what the tracks looked like. But in this case, it was too cold for the snow to, uh, to melt. So locals call them the devil's footprints. They're also known as um, Satan tracks, mostly because of the hoof shape and the fact that uh, they went on for nearly a mile and up, up the side of walls and over barns but, and stuff like that. Yeah, I'd say. That sounds Satan-y to me. Well, it certainly does sound supernatural. Devon became known as the place where the devil takes his walks. Newspapers of the day warned people to stay indoors after dark. There were also reports that the hoof marks seemed to have been burned into the snow, and in some cases wood. There was uh, one particular case where the tracks walked across a wooden barn floor, and witnesses said that it was like they were branded in the wood. Wow, that is 100% dedication to fuckery. The uh, people of Devon became convinced it was the devil, of course. He was responsible for the tracks. And because of that, they heeded the newspaper's warnings. They stayed inside after dark. They were convinced the devil went down to Devon looking for a soul to steal. <laughs> or perhaps he was just sniffing out their sins. I don't know. These reports were widely covered in newspapers. But then there was a long stretch between this initial sighting and the next one. It wasn't until the 1950s in Devon when the next sighting occurred. In 1957, and this seems to have been substantiated when an anthropologist reported finding hoof prints on Devon Beach that looked as though the mark had been cut in the sand with a flat iron, that it looked burned into the sand. These particular sets of footprints in 1957 were spaced about six feet apart. Oh. It was a much wider stride of a gate. Yeah. As if he was running. Well, he's on the beach. So maybe that's just one of his favorite pastimes is, is running on the beach. Playing frisbee, maybe. Yeah. Mm. Part of his personals ad. Long uh, no. runs on the beach. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, Cupid. More See, like okay, Beazelbub. <laughs> Another local resident, Linda Hansen, in 1957, wrote to the Times and uh, talked about tracks that she found in her parents' garden. Her description was similar to the Devil's Footprints, the original ones in 1855, almost exactly the same. Beneath these tracks, she said she saw what looked like dry concrete, as if the tracks had melted through the snow and transformed into some sort of a cement substance. 
That doesn't make any sense. No, it don't. There were some brave people that followed the tracks in the 1850s. They uh, ended up in some pretty weird places. There's a story that uh, was credited to a reverend. His name was J.J. Rowe and another uh, guy, R.H. Busk. They claimed they they tried to follow the trail with some hounds. Quote, at last in a wood, the hounds came back baying and terrified. Another report said uh, a man followed the prince for miles, and when he came to the end of the trail, there were no more prints. There was nothing at the end of the trail except a toad sitting there. That would be terrifying. Wait, in the snow? Or is it yeah. not snowy at this time? No, apparently in the snow. Weird, huh? Yes. So what caused the footprints? There's been a lot of explanations over the years. Many skeptics have attempted to explain the devil's footprints by claiming that they were mice. That doesn't really hold water. Um, Badgers was another explanation, but we don't need no stinking badgers. And then there's the most interesting one, I thought. Again, this was in the UK. Kangaroos. Oh. One theory claimed that there was a guy who had kangaroos or wallabies uh, as a pet or as pets uh, nearby, and that he uh, purposely loosed the wallabies and then uh, after they made all their tracks, he recaptured them and, you know, it was like a kangaroo hoax. Wow. Yeah. No, you've got a tiny kangaroo down, sport. You can't. Yeah, that's true. Another explanation was it was some sort of experimental balloon that was accidentally released by Devonport Dockyard. According to one group of locals in a, in a uh, newspaper article, a pair of shackles dangling from the balloon's mooring ropes had intermittently dragged and left tracks in the snow. Oh. But uh, people, and, and people learned about this from uh, a man whose grandfather had worked at the docks in 1855 when this allegedly has ta- had taken place. Got it. But the notion of a drifting balloon leaving uniformly spaced tracks that look cloven each time is a bit unlikely. And what's more, there were no balloons that were reported. They never found a balloon. Right. They, they, they found a toad. I know in the past, I have seen marks in the snow that I thought were tracks and then realized that it was uh, blobs from where snow had fallen sure. off the overhead wires mm-hmm. and was very disappointed. <laughs> so I was like, oh, what's this? Oh, you're an idiot. Cool. Modern day theorists think, of course, that it was some sort of a UFO event. Um, <laughs> of course. These were tracks of some, apparently some sort of alien, uh, cloven-hooved creature. Could it be? That uh, went wandering through Devon in a snowstorm. Again, these cases have been reported around the world in other situations and other locations, all, you know, from Madagascar to Belgium to Scotland. Back in 1945, tracks were found in the snow in Belgium. Like Devon's footprints back in 1855, the set moved in a straight line looked like footprints of an animal with cloven hooves, but walking upright on two feet. The bottom line is, we really don't know. But most modern-day researchers say that some of the prints can be explained, but not all of them. The footprints are peculiar, said Graham Ingalls, who is a zoologist. He said the footprints are peculiar. He told the Telegraph he doesn't believe that they were made by the devil. Quote, I don't believe the horned one has been strolling about in Devon. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so the devil's footprints. What is your theory? I'm interested. I, you know, my thought is if this really happened, it would be really hard to explain. 
Um, I'm not, I'm not suggesting it was, you know, the devil, but how do you explain walking up walls and over roofs for hundreds of miles in one night? It, you know, hoaxing doesn't seem like a a likely possibility. You doubt fuckery? I I doubt that type of high-end coordinated fuckery. (laughs) It's more likely that the newspapers were involved in some sort of fuckery. Oh, you think so? That's the only thing I can think. Is That's that it, interesting. It may have been some sort of a newspaper hoax, much oh. like the uh, Edgar Allan Poe thing that you were telling us about. So what you're saying is when you read something in the news, you should be critical about the sources and consider who would be benefiting from the story. Right, exactly. Huh. Um, it was kind of like a mid-19th century meme in many ways. <laughs> and now... That thing in the middle. So you think you're having a bad day? Pierre Cotta was on his way to the airport when he got into a car accident. The car crash caused a pilot. He then hailed a cab and continued his journey to the airport, where he got on a plane. And that plane crashed, killing 87 people. Not only did Pierre survive both incidents, but he went to work immediately after. And he wasn't even late. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... 
Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout and you will save thanks aura frames for bringing my family a little bit closer want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money well i've got the podcast for you i'm sean piles and i host nerd wallets smart money podcast on our show we help listeners like you make the most of your finances i sit down with nerd wallets team of nerds personal finance experts in credit cards banking investing and more we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You uh, really put on that shirt this morning and decided to wear it all day? Okay. This is the Box of Oddities. So we got this email from Lauren, and the uh, the subject matter was simply Cadaver Lab. So that grabbed my attention. Sure. Uh, listening to a recent episode about hanging coffins, that reminded me of my anatomy lab days in college. This is going to sound gross, but I promise I'm not the only one to report these side effects in Cadaver Lab. Boners. In co- they call it angel lust, I think. <laughs> In college, I took an anatomy course, which had a required cadaver lab along with it. My lab was right before lunch, and my mom would pick me up after lab and take me out to eat for lunch. I thought that being in a cadaver lab would decrease or ruin my appetite. Nope. After a couple of weeks of my cadaver lab, I started to notice that I was ravishingly hungry afterwards. Much more than just being hungry, just because it was lunchtime. It really freaked me out. Was I some sort of a closet cannibal? (laughs) Apparently, the formaldehyde used to preserve the bodies can act as an appetite stimulant. Oh, wow. A lot of medical slash anatomy students report the same side effects, although I can't find any hard and fast evidence or studies proving this. It seems to be a common belief and experience. I was very reassured to find out that I was not alone in feeling abnormally hungry after working with cadavers. That's wonderful. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks, Lauren. Bon appetit. And what you got for me? I was talking with a friend the other day about uh, yard sailing and how it is one of my favorite pastimes. uh, And I used the term dicker. And uh, (laughs) Dicker? (laughs) I don't even know her. Yeah. 
And uh, this tiny baby person that I'm friends with had never heard the term dicker. Really? And I got to thinking about it. And I was like, okay, well, is this like a me thing? Is this an uh, like a New England thing? Where what's, the, what's up with the term dicker? And why doesn't everyone know it? So I did some digging and I discovered a few things. Uh, let's go. Dicker, in case you're not familiar, <laughs> means to trade on a small scale by bargain or barter and to uh, haggle, essentially, right. over that price. Dickering. According to Vocabulary.com, when you dicker, you negotiate, often with some arguing or back and forth. Uh, An example would be you might dicker with your dog walker over how many walks your dog needs each day, Um, though I would then... Uh, not hire that dog walker at all because you'll do what I tell you, but whatever. (laughs) Um, (laughs) According to vocabulary.com, the word is purely American and comes from the early 1800s. Really? Now, according to Word Wizard, the term dicker derives from the Latin word for a bundle of 10, decura or decum. Okay, all right. And generally, the term dicker would refer to a bundle of 10 animal hides. A letter of the Roman Emperor Valerian directs the procurer of Syria to furnish to Claudius, among other supplies, Pelium Tentorium Decurus Trigentia. I butchered that, but basically it means 30 dickers of skins for tents. Okay. The early adoption of the Latin word by the Germans is explained by the tribute of skins, which they had to pay to the Romans, as well as the facts that skins formed a leading item on the frontier trade between Romans and the northern, quote unquote, barbarians. As they were trading, the term became more and more popular. A dicker meant 10 skins. Now, it didn't start off as dicker. It was a bastardization of of the Latin term. The word was eventually corrupted to dicker while maintaining its original meaning. Its use in the animal skin trade appears to be its only meaning in continental languages. In English, however, it started to extend to other goods. For example, the dicker of iron in the Doomsday Book which is a record of a survey of the lands of England made by order of William the Conqueror around 1086, is generally held to have been 10 rods, enough sufficient to make two horseshoes. So what has more value, dicker or rods? Well, it's a dicker of rods, so I would say... Not with. That's right. Okay. Correct. According to Oxford English Dictionary, as skins have always formed a chief item in the trade, barter traffic in North America, it has been suggested with much probability that the verb arose in the sense to deal by the dicker, to deal in skins. Among the traders, it extended in the U.S. to trade by barter generally. So it was a gradual shift in meaning over the years. It went from the thing that you dicker with to the act of dickering. Gotcha. There's a poem by James Whitcomb Riley that involves dickering. Now, you'd think if it involves a dicker, it's a limerick, but it's not. (laughs) Well, a year ago or better, a letter comes to hand, asking how I'd like to dicker for some Illinois land. Yeah. 
The feller that had owned it, it went ahead to state, had just deceased insolvent, leaving chance to speculate. Which I thought was adorable. And I love that I found a poem that involved the word dicker. Yes. According to AmericanExpress.com, until it's agreed upon by both buyer and seller, a price is merely a proposition offered by one party. And the buyer has a say, too, but only if they're willing to dicker. Not absolutely everything, of course, is negotiable. They continue, from a light bulb to a fleet vehicle, there's almost always a way to get a better deal. I love that AmericanExpress.com has details on dickering. (laughs) Everything is negotiable except the address. And your interest rates. (laughs) American Express, I'm talking to you. That term became used in real estate, essentially meaning that every detail except the most basic facet can be haggled. Everything else is just an offer. According to the spruce.com, insulting the merchandise is where a lot of people fail in dickering. That it, once you start to demean the item that the person's trying to sell, one, it doesn't imply that you're actually interested in buying it, and two, you've insulted the person, so they are losing twice if they go right. to your new price. Right. Now, in some cultures, one is expected to dicker. Of course, not everyone calls it dicker. So when in the Philippines, you may get some weird looks. Yeah, when you say you want a dicker, especially with a rod. Business2Community.com writes, One main thing to remember that most items are fair game to haggle upon, except for food, which in many countries it's considered very rude to haggle over the price of food. However, Vietnam is one of the only countries where haggling for food is considered fair game. Really? Since negotiable prices are expected because there are so many tourists. In some countries, such as India, merchants will prefer to haggle slowly over a number of interaction over the course of days. So they like to dicker slowly. That's right. For many travelers, that is too long a time scale. So uh, the the goal is to let the vendor know that you won't be returning to further dicker. Well, that's only fair. If you're not going to dicker anymore, you should let her know. Good-natured haggling is part of daily life in Asia because most prices are padded, expecting that dickering will take place. Ecuador is a lot like that. Negotiating is just part of the, of the way of life there. That's right. Even even you look at rent prices. And Absolutely. You know, it'll say this much money, negotiable. Right. It is a time-honored tradition in some countries like Turkey, Egypt, Thailand, Morocco, India, and Dubai. But being aware of your surroundings is incredibly important when you are looking to dicker. You don't want to dicker out in the open. In Dubai, vendor stalls are where you want to dicker. <laughs> sure. But if you're in a Dubai mall, haggling is severely frowned upon. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I, I think no matter what country I'm in, if I'm in a mall, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to haggle. Haggling in a mall is bad form. I don't think that's always the case. Because I think in many places, a mall is just a series of stalls inside. Yeah, but they're mostly corporate owned. I tried to haggle once in a Sears. That didn't go well. <laughs> the The point is, pay attention to what people around you are doing. In Southeast Asia, losing face is embarrassing for both parties in haggling. So it's 
said that you must smile always while asking for the low price, and then the vendors will recognize that you are at ease and want to do business with them. However, in Egypt and Tunisia, the vendors tend to be a bit more aggressive and straight to the point. So showing a smile reveals that uh, you might be a fool. Maybe you're a little goofy. Yeah. So knowing the practices of the place that you're traveling to when you're dickering is very important. I know some places in the Middle East, too, when you're haggling or negotiating, you have to shake hands the entire time negotiation process mm. it's a, just a, a you're shaking hands the whole time i'm the not gonna pay time. that yeah well this is what i want well I, i'll offer this and it's just <laughs> shaking 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 in my research i found many articles related to how british people are bad at haggling really which i don't think is necessarily true i just don't think it's as common so you don't get the practice in they're bad british hagglers There is a thread about haggling in Ireland that said you can ask, is that your best price? But there's no real haggling. Mm. Um, It is a yes or no. You just move on if that's not going to work for you. In Russia, people are used to bargaining. But from the blogs that I read, they are either willing to negotiate on prices or absolutely not. There's no use in trying to convince someone Mm. to negotiate with you. In Marrakesh, you must always keep your sense of humor about you. They love to make colorful references about your culture and what you look like. (laughs) Really? And they will maybe base their haggling negotiations on your appearance. So maybe they'd be like, oh, your hair looks dumb. You're going to want this scarf to cover it up so that no (laughs) one will see you looking goofy, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Which uh, it's just considered playful and that's just the way they do it. So don't take offense to that kind of thing. The one thing uh, regarding dickering, the art of the dicker, if you will, that I found was consistent across the board in every place where you might dicker is do not make an offer if you're not willing to pay it. Well, we've all learned that on eBay. (laughs) Yes. And I hope that we can continue that trend. It is considered incredibly bad form to say that, you know, you'd only be willing to pay this much. And if they agree to it, not end up buying it. You cannot walk away after you've offered that price. There's a difference between a dicker and a dickhead. That's right. Exactly correct. So now I hope that we all have a better understanding of dickering and what dicker means. Well, one of the meanings. I love to dicker. Um, I'm not particularly good at it. And you and I have, have discussed this. It, um, it Sometimes it comes down to what the price means for you versus mm-hmm. what it means for the person who's mm-hmm. selling the thing. Sure. So we have overpaid uh, multiple times for items that we possibly could have gotten for cheaper elsewhere. But, you know, if it's a handmade item that the cost of which is going to make a difference in the life of the person we're buying it from, right, we're happy right. to pay that. And, and really, yeah, it, it, it depends on what you have in mind going into the negotiation. Mm. It doesn't do anybody any good after you've agreed to something to think, well, I could have gotten it for a lower price. Okay, maybe you could, but sure. but now it's just a competition. If, right. Did you pay what, did you feel as though what you were willing to pay at the time was fair? Right. Do, do you enjoy the product? Are you satisfied with it? Is it helping the 
artisan or the person who is selling it, then move along. <laughs> That's why one of the things that, that really bothered me when I worked in retail was the whole concept of price matching. Now, I, I appreciate that sometimes sales end sooner than you thought they were going to, whatever, but... I oftentimes would interact with people who three months after they purchased a product would want the new price. Mm. And they would be like, Mm. well, it's not fair. And I was like, well, the price that you paid is the price that you agreed was a reasonable price. And you agreed to that price. So I don't owe you shit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you had some interesting experiences in customer service, Uh, like the person that brought back the batteries. Oh, yes. That was many, many years ago. Yeah. Someone, uh, when I worked the service desk at a local department store, they wanted to return batteries uh, without a package, without a receipt, that were corroded, that had obviously been used for some time. And the the reason was, well, they don't work anymore. <laughs> so basically, they found some batteries in their junk drawer <laughs> and thought, well, I'll just take them back. Yep. And so I said no, uh, to which they responded, I would like to speak with your manager. The manager gave them store credit for those batteries. And I said, see, this is why. Did you quit? No, but the store went bankrupt. (laughs) Lesson learned. Right? Be watching our social media for an announcement as to when our virtual live from our basement show will be taking place. We're, we're just days away at this point. Yeah. It's in post-production, as they say. In other words, um, it's on my laptop and I haven't gotten around to it yet. <laughs> but but we promise we, we'll, we'll get it all together and get it up online before you know it. As always, we love hanging out with you guys and we look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so... Let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, it is merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2020 All Rights Reserved. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.